funny. Everyone that wrote a systematic theology book about God that I studied this week started out with some kind of a self-effacing comment. The minute they started thinking of how do we how do we wrap our brains around God, they suddenly felt inadequate. J.I. Packer said, as a clown longs to play Hamlet, so I have longed to write a book on God. And it's so right, because he's so good and big, and we feel how small we are in contrast. So I bought a new bike light for my road bicycle, and I took the old one and put it on my beach cruiser bike, except the handlebars have different sizes, and so the mount doesn't quite work right, and I, should, I know I can fix it, I just haven't yet, and I keep forgetting to, and every time I get on that bike and turn the light on, as I ride, the vibrations of the ride, slowly the light goes like this, and then it's shining on, on the, the front wheel. And I share that with you because it's so similar to our lives spiritually. We know God should be the center of all that we do. And then the bumps of life and whatever, our sights are on him. And then they go, and we keep falling down and looking at ourselves. And so I, as I prayed about what to preach through this fall, I started to think, well, let's lift our eyes back up. Let's get our sights on the God who made us. Let's, let's become occupied with greatness. To be occupied is to be filled or inhabited. So what are you thinking about lately? What occupies your energy and your thoughts and your time and your effort and your resources and everything? Is it great or is it less than great? And there's only one way it can possibly be great is if it's focused on God, the great one. Anything less than that is less than greatness. So I want to, with this series, lay out some attributes of God, thoughts about who God is, um, help us, by studying God, become better worshipers of him. Now, there are two problems at the outside, outside of this. One, of course, is the problem of idolatry, and the other is the problem of God. And I'm going to start with both of those before I go into the text I've chosen for this morning. To be occupied with anything less than God is a form of idolatry. Consider the first two commandments. From, uh, I'll jump back here to Exodus 20. The first two commandments, these are what God gave Moses for the people of God and for us today. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Have no other gods before me. There's the first commandment. He is first. God is first, and he needs to be first in our lives. Have nothing else, no other God, nothing else before him. The second one is to, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, the thing about us is that we are made by God to worship him, and we are made as worshipers. And it doesn't matter if you think you don't worship something. As a worshiper, you worship something. We all do. The question just becomes, what are we worshiping? And so John Calvin, the reformer, said our hearts are idol factories. If we're not occupied with God and his greatness, we will be occupied with something else. We will come up with something to worship. Now, whether it's a physical thing like a carven image or something that we actually bow down to and worship, or it's something more ethereal in nature, some, something that's maybe not a physical thing, anything that is not God that we worship is idolatry. A.W. Tozer said the essence, the essence of idolatry is this. It's entertaining thoughts of God that are unworthy of him. It's been said that in the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since, we've been trying to repay the favor. 
Think about that. How often is our idea of God merely a projection of ourselves? We look down, like the light that falls down, we look at ourselves, and then we need to worship something, so we create God based on what we've seen looking down. Instead of looking up to him, looking at what he has revealed to be true of him, and then deciding to worship based on that truth. It's so easy for us to exchange the truth about God for something else. And the Apostle Paul, when he starts into his great letter to the Romans, deals with that very thing. And he says, in Romans 1, he says, um, for although they, meaning people, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That doesn't describe them. That describes humans all of us. We are constantly tempted to exchange worship of God for something that he's created. Instead of worshiping the creator, we are tempted to worship the creation or some aspect of it. So that's the problem of idolatry. The second problem when we head into a a study like this is the problem of God himself. The problem of God, of course, is not what God would refer to it as. He doesn't see himself as a problem. That's from a human perspective. And the problem is laid out really um, powerfully in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, where the first little section, there's four sections to that work, and the first section concludes with chapter 5, which says this. The title of it is, We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. You see, what C.S. Lewis decided to do is rather than take the Bible or the teachings of the church and then lay out mere Christianity from that, he wanted to back up a couple steps and start putting the Bible and the church aside and say, what can be known of God? How do we figure out God? And he's starting, of course, with the created order. We can look at the universe and see, and our own hearts. And so C.S. Lewis begins by the standards that we, we all appeal to them, and you hear it every single day. He gives the example of someone saying, give me a piece of your orange because I gave you a piece of mine. Why are you cutting in line? I was here first. How would you like it if someone else did that to you? Those and other statements are appealing to some universal moral code, some sense of what is right and good in society. And no one retorts by saying, who cares about your standard? Where did it come from anyway? We usually, we usually try to give an excuse as to why In our case, the standard is slightly different. There's a reason why I shouldn't give you a piece of orange back. There's a reason why I should be able to be first in line this time. See, what C.S. Lewis is doing is he's starting with the fact that God's law is written on our hearts. There is a moral code within us, and our very conscience is bearing witness to right from wrong all the time. Everybody experiences that. And so we go, where did that come from? And this idea of goodness, that we have this sense of right from wrong and goodness, and we know we should do good. Where did it come from? What came from outside of the system? Some good being put that there. And then the other thing that's unnerving, the problem here, is that we don't follow the code. We know what is good, and we know that we should do good, but we don't do it. And so we find that if there's this power, this 
this, um, this goodness out there, whatever you would want to call him. And C.S. Lewis says, I haven't gotten to him yet, it, a being, something, absolute goodness. If there's absolute goodness out there that put this code on our heart, then he can't enjoy what we do. He's got to be against it because we do the other thing. So God exists. He's put his written law on our hearts, and we don't do it so we're at odds with God. He lands there, and he goes, now, once a person gets to that point, the gospel speaks volumes, tons and tons to that person. The person who doesn't think that they have this written on their heart, who doesn't think there's a good God, well, the gospel says nothing to you. You don't need good news then. You don't, you don't recognize your need. Tozer, in his knowledge of the holy, A.W. Tozer, also lands at the very same thing in this problem of God. But what I like about Tozer is he actually talks about one of the good things about focusing on God. It's that 10,000 problems of this life go away if you really do focus on the majesty, the grandeur of God. Because the man or woman who sets her sights or his sights on God suddenly realizes all the problems of this life are very small in contrast. They're temporary. They very quickly will be gone. But then we're left with one big problem, as Tozer calls it. The big problem is this. We feel this sense of duty in our hearts that we are to serve God with all our heart and soul, that we are to obey him perfectly, and that we are to worship him appropriately for who he is. And that our conscience says, you're not doing it. You don't do it. And that is a crushing weight that we carry. The man or woman who gets to that place then goes, what hope is there? Now, the gospel speaks volumes. And it's not pleasant to go through that, to reason through that, to recognize that place of dependence and brokenness. But we have to get there if the gospel is going to speak anything. Once we get there, though, now it's like, okay, God, what can we learn? Who are you? What do we do with this? My conscience is bearing witness against me. Who are you? Now, as I picked a text for this morning to start this off, I, I thought about the fact that God is. Just God is. God is first. He's preeminent. He's the first. So I went naturally to where he tells his name for the first time. And so if you want to turn with me in your Bible, we're in Exodus chapter 3. We're pretty far, by the way, in the narrative of God. You know, I'm going in Exodus here, and I'm, I'm dealing with Moses and God's interaction with Moses in Exodus 3. A lot has come before that. But what I like about this is God gives a name. He tells Moses what his name is. And we learn that God is first. So you can learn a lot about God by looking at the created order. You can learn that he's brilliant. He's an artist. The order is beautiful. I'm staying out at the beach at a condo this weekend. I just keep looking out over the ocean thinking, this is amazing. God made this. What an artist. But then I also was watching a tarpon tear up a bunch of fish and jumping, and it was violent. And I thought, this is a dangerous thing God has made. If all we know about God is that he's an incredible artist and he put this all together, but it's a cold and exacting universe, and there's a lot that can get us out there, right? And so maybe God can't be trusted. Maybe, what, is he a good God? He might be an artist and he might be powerful, but is he safe? Is he good? Is he, we have to ask these questions. Thankfully, this book gives us specific revelation, not just general revelation about him. And so in this account here, which is much longer than the section we read, we have God about to do another rescue. 
And this time, he is going to call Moses to be his person to work through. So Moses is out tending his um, flocks. He's out in the fields, and a bush is on fire. You all know the story, because it's so amazing. But maybe you haven't spent time reflecting on it recently. The bush is on fire, but not being consumed by the fire like a bush normally would be. And so in curiosity, Moses goes over to see this thing. And as he gets near, God speaks to him and says, Stop. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for you are on holy ground. In other words, this is not a sight for curiosity. This is about holiness. Take off your sandals. I am holy. We start to learn something about God. And God goes on here, and he begins to share that he is going to rescue the Israelites, and he's going to use Moses to do it. And Moses is reluctant. And so when Moses says, well, if I go to the Israelites and say that, you, that I'm supposed to help lead them out, who should I say sent me? It's at this point, then, that God tells something about his character. He uses the verb to be, which is hayah in Hebrew, but it's conjugated in the first person, I am, as Yahweh. Yahweh. It's four Hebrew letters. Yahweh. I am that I am, or I will be that I will be. It's conjugated the same way. And here's a, here's a note. If you're reading the ESV and some of the other translations, anywhere in the Old Testament that that particular name, Yahweh for God, occurs, they translate it as the Lord, and they put it in all, cap, all caps. They make the word the T in an L in the Lord a little bigger, but the other, like a capital L, and then a, cap, a little smaller, but capital O-R-D. If you look at it, um, look, look down in like verse 14 and 15, 15 in particular, it has a footnote. It says, God said to Moses, say this to the people, the Lord, is how it's in the English, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, sent me to you. And the footnote in the ESV says, right there is actually the word Yahweh, but we, we say the Lord. But they put it in all caps. See, God's name is about his existence, his being. God is before everything. So what could his name possibly be? He is. He exists. He's before everything. You know, it's funny how um, illustrations remain with you in a sermon. And as a high school student, I remember the pastor at my church giving an illustration about God being first and creating everything out of nothing. And he described a, a, a certain monarch in the Middle Ages who was trying to select an appropriate preacher and chaplain for his royal court. And what he decided to do was have these gifted preachers come to his court and be prepared with only a prepared heart and mind. And he would hand them an envelope, and they would open it up, and in there would be the verse or the subject they would preach on, and they had to speak for 30 minutes off the stump right there and give a sermon to the king and his court. And then they would decide which would be the appropriate chaplain. For the man who could preach like that could handle speaking God's word to whatever situations might present themselves to this king. And the one who won was handed an envelope, and he opened it up, and he pulled out the piece of paper, and there was nothing on either side. It was just totally blank. And so, um, and so he pulled out the envelope and saw that there was nothing on the piece of paper, and he said, there's nothing on this piece of paper, and it is out of nothing that everything was created. The Latin term is ex nihilo, from nothing. God was first. If you take the first five words of the Bible, in the beginning God created. Well, what was in the beginning before that? Only God. It was out of nothing. And for 30 minutes, this preacher went on about God being first. 
God is the one who initiates everything. Everything flows from him. It is out of nothing that everything came. Our scientists now who are studying the universe are recognizing that it is expanding. And they're all saying it is coming out of what they call the Big Bang, a tiny like, little moment where nothing was, and out of energy everything came, and it's still expanding. Now, they can't answer the question of what was before that, because that's not science anymore. That's now religion, theology, philosophy. But the Bible addresses that very succinctly. In the beginning, God created. And this term, I am, is about being, existence. God exists. He exists, and he always has existed. And Jesus, the Son of God, is God and has existed as well. So in John chapter 1, he picks up the prologue, echoing the same thing from Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning, and nothing that has been made was made apart from him. All things were made through him. So God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there in the beginning. Out of nothing, everything came. God is first. He is paramount. He is premium. He is the foremost. These are the kind of thoughts that have to inform our worship. We need to look at the created order and then look behind it and recognize God is the one behind all of this and allow that to occupy our minds. Now, the minute that God interacts with people, the minute that God begins to reveal things about himself, we get a lot more than just he exists. And I'm going to give you just a couple quickly in here to get us started. But think about what we learn just from this interaction with Moses. Of course, we see the problem of God, as I've called it, in verse 6. We didn't read that up in there, but we'll back up to verse 6. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That's the problem of God. Sinful people come into the presence of perfection and immediately feel overcome by our shame. Everywhere throughout the Bible that someone meets face-to-face like this with God, they're, they're, they fall on their faces, they cry, woe is me, they do all sorts of things because all of a sudden our sin and our inadequacy and our evil becomes very apparent to us. It's humbling and frightening. So we see that here. We also see that God is the one who initiates. God being first, he's the one who chose to reveal himself to people. He came to Moses. Moses didn't go looking for God. God It revealed something about himself to Moses. We also see that God is a God who's on a mission to rescue, in this case specifically to pull the people out of Egypt and bring them up to the promised land. God is the rescuer. He's a God who goes on a mission to save and to serve. God also calls individuals for his work. See, he's calling Moses here to a specific task, but we'll learn through the rest of the Bible that he calls everyone. He is inviting us into his work. He did not need Moses. Being Almighty God, he could have simply just gotten his people out of Egypt a different way. He chooses to work with and through people. It really does edify us and humble us at the same time. He doesn't need us, and yet he chooses us, chooses to work with us. He also self-identifies through relationships. He doesn't just say, I am. He says, I am has sent you the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His prior relationships with these patriarchs define, he chooses to define himself based on his relationships. So he's known, and he wants to be known throughout all generations as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a God of relationships. And I'll give you one last one and then a couple of application points. God is incredibly patient with us in our so-called God problem. Five different times in here, Moses is reluctant and tries to get out of the call. 
And it's not until the fifth time that God gets angry with him. And really, he gets angry with him because he's not trusting God's answers to the objections. He's not angry because there are objections. He's angry that when he answers the objections, Moses doesn't accept them. And so Moses several times gives a reason why he shouldn't do this. And God is so patient with him. And we see that throughout the whole scriptures as we study who God is. We find that he's patient with us. So even taking on this grand topic, coming as finite people to approach an infinite God, we're going to get it wrong on some levels because we're starting from the wrong place ourselves. God is patient with us. He reveals more. I said last, last time that I preached that whoever's given a little bit, what he does with that, he'll be given more if he's faithful with a little bit. I'm trusting that God is going to lead us to more and more understanding of him as we become occupied with him, as we choose to think about him. Now, what I'm getting at here is the issue of worship. I've mentioned already that we were created to worship. You and I are worshiping beings. We are meant to worship, and we want to worship well. Worship this God, the God of the scriptures, the God of the universe, the one and only God. Don't shy away from him because of the problem of your sin. Now, I didn't get into Christ here yet, specifically as the solution, but in Christ, press in. He's made provision for us to be able to come into his holiness. And that's where the cross comes from, and that's where the gospel speaks to us. He has provided for us. So instead of fearing and hiding like, like Adam and Eve did in their shame, let's cry out in the name of Christ for mercy and then come into God's presence. That's what he's inviting us to do. So in this study, let's choose to be occupied with greatness. Think about what occupies your life right now. Consider pushing it aside, reordering yourself around God himself. Become occupied with greatness, and then let those other things find their appropriate place in light of that, rather than the way that we look down on ourselves and our self becomes the primary thing that we worship. Let's worship God with his help and by his grace. Would you pray with me? Lord, I definitely agree with J.I. Packer, that idea of a clown wanting to play Hamlet when we presume to come, when I presume to come and even speak about you. And yet, Lord, you've revealed yourself to us most perfectly in your Son, but throughout the Scriptures. Give us a desire for more. Give us a hunger and a thirst for you. Show us wonderful things about yourself and your Word. Help us to trust your Word. Help us to see the problems of this life grow pale in comparison with your light, your glory, your grandeur. Lord, you are majestic. You are indeed the great I am, and we worship you. In the name of Jesus, amen.